you would, please open your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The passage ends in chapter 10, verse 4. So 9, 8 to 10, 4. I think you'll see a refrain, a chorus, if you will, that recurs and brings this passage together in some unity there. Uh, I wrote the sermon title weeks ago. The ESV Bible has a uh, better title, Judgment on Arrogance and Oppression. Another note before we dive in. No reflection questions this week in the bulletin because I finished the sermon after the bulletin had to be printed. So uh, sometimes that happens. Without further ado, let's go before God's word. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Isaiah 9, verse 8, starting there. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against them and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn back to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like fire, like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So let's ask his blessing as we consider his word now. Let's pray. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. We listen when we hear good news. We listen when we hear a harsh word, knowing that you are a good God who hates evil but extends love to those who are evil and beckons us to come to you. So help us to hear your word this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 
God is angry, God is angry, God is angry, and God is angry. I chose not to use that sermon outline for today's sermon, but it would have been an accurate outline of the passage. Four sections, all ending the same way. Verse 12, 17, 21, and 10, verse 4. For all this, His anger has not turned away, and His hand is stretched out still. And why am I not doubling down, so to speak, on the anger in today's passage? I'm not sure that's the most accurate way to say it, but nonetheless, because this passage was probably not spoken to the primary causes of God's anger. Let me explain. Isaiah, from southern Israel, also known as Judah, probably spoke these words to Judah. But they are not primarily about Judah, it seems. Because Isaiah mentions Israel in verse 8, which in this context usually refers to the northern kingdom, the even more wicked half of God's people back then. Same goes for his use of Jacob in verse 8, or Ephraim, verse 9, a prominent tribe in the northern kingdom, or Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. All of these are describing the destruction of the northern kingdom, which was the first half of God's people to be invaded and exiled by a foreign nation. And not to go too deep into Israel's history, but at this time they were essentially two kingdoms northern and southern. But Isaiah most likely spoke these words to the southerners, his people, who were not quite as wicked as their northern neighbors and brothers. So yes, God is angry against his own people who are called by his name. But that may be more of a cautionary tale for his people this morning, unless you are guilty of the same sins that we will discuss today. But here's how I'd like to use this cautionary tale. Not simply to examine what God hates, we will do that, but also to see what God loves. We're called to love what God loves and hate what God hates. So as we examine these admittedly harsh words against God's people from the 8th century B.C., what do we see? What does God want? Desire. Love. That's how I've structured our four points today. Let's dive in first. The Lord wants repentance and rest more than rebuilding. Repentance and rest more than rebuilding. Verses 8 through 12. The Lord is angry against Jacob. He has sent a word against them, against his people. Again, in northern Israel, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, chapter 9, verse 10, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. What's going on here? Well, they are experiencing God's judgment. Their cities are crumbling, have crumbled, and yet they say, we will build it all back, and we will build it back even better. Not bricks, but dress stones. Not sycamores, we'll use cedars, even better trees. Not formica, but granite, even quartz. Our Fords have failed, so we will buy BMWs and Maseratis. Reminiscent in some ways of Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. They're out of touch with their miserable reality because they're so full of pride. Notice some things about the context. This passage is very similar to Isaiah 5, many similar phrases. Secondly, this passage comes right after Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 
7, the light that will come and shine into the darkness that will bring forth the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All that is to come. Why, why is that important? Why is the placement important? Because Isaiah is basically saying, yes, Israel and Judah, you will one day have a deliverer and he will be glorious. But right now, you got problems. You have a foreign, you have many foreign godless nations invading you, as verses 11 through 12 mention. Rezin's enemies, a.k.a. the mighty Assyrians, as well as Syria, as well as Philistia. Israel's surrounded. They've been invaded already, and it's about to happen again. And all Israel can say is, but we want to build everything back and make it better. And in all this, God's anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. You see, God is not calling Israel to rebuild things in her own strength. God is calling Israel to turn from her sin, especially the pride that makes them think they can rebuild it all on their own. Some might call that determination. God calls it pride, arrogance, because they never bothered to repent. And what does all that tell you about Israel's God, our God? Despite their sin, despite God's punishment, present and future, God is still calling them. All this reminds me of Isaiah 30, verses 15 to 18. There, Isaiah speaks to God's people, who are again threatened by an invasion, who are about to flee to Egypt for salvation. Egypt is the latest quick fix for God's people in Isaiah 30. But God is begging them to seek Him. Instead of the quick fix, listen to our gracious God wooing His rebellious, untrusting people. Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Returning or repentance. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits, or as the NIV says, longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. God's angry in Isaiah 9, yes. But he is the same God as Isaiah 30. And in both places, God is not calling his people to try harder, to rebuild in their own strength. God is calling his people to return to him, to repent of pride and a thousand other sins that flow from it, to rest in the finished work of salvation that God has already accomplished. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Again, the NIV says he longs to be gracious to you. Your gracious God may be angry at times, but it's because He wants something better for you. He wants you to rest in Him. 1,500 years or so later, St. Augustine still says it best, You made us for Yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Isaiah is not done. Because he knows that some have not heard his word. So he goes on. Secondly, the thing we see is that the Lord wants us to seek him more than the experts. 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, verses 13 to 17. There's a progression in the passage here. First, God rebukes Israel's pride. Then he rebukes their wayward leaders. Now that, that may not be the motivational, feel-good message we want as we install new elders and deacons today. <laughs> but it's the next passage in Isaiah. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the passage God wanted us and our leaders to hear today. Beware, take note, whatever is appropriate. But he, he doesn't necessarily start by talking about the leaders. Verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. The first problem is that Israel is not repenting. They are not turning, returning to God, to him who struck them. Listen to one of my old professor's sermons on a regular basis. See, it's what preachers do. Doctors read medical journals. Preachers listen to other sermons. But countless times since March 2020, he has said this to his congregation. It is possible that God has sent this pandemic upon us as a judgment, a warning, a call to examine ourselves. And if you dismiss that too quickly, that would be a mistake. Now let me talk for myself. Have the events of this past year plus caused you to examine yourself, to seek the Lord, to humble yourself, to pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Have you done that? If not, why not? And if you have, maybe God is not trying to expose your secret sins and misdeeds dark. Maybe, like Josh said last week, God is simply building and refining your character. Israel did not seek him who struck them. Instead, they followed their leaders who were part of the problem. And in God's judgment, he allowed the leaders to crumble. Verse 14, we'll read through 16. So the Lord cut off Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. He cut them off head and tail from top to bottom. He allowed the people to get the kind of leaders they deserved. The people were wicked, verse 13 says. They didn't repent. And the leaders were misguided and clueless. It was blind leading the blind. And eventually they would be cut off. God would let them experience the natural consequences of their sin. Parents know that trick as well. We could all tell stories. Israel trusted, you might say, her expertise. The expertise of her leaders even though, as it says here, the prophets, many of them, most of them, were wicked liars. But God wanted them to seek him who struck them, as verse 13 says. And why? Because God was ready to give them grace, as we've said, and God was ready to give them wisdom as well. Years later, James, the Lord's brother, would write this, James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Experts are not always evil. Effort is not always a bad thing. But in all of our effort, 
in all of our expertise, ours in that of others that we seek, in all of this, God wants us to turn to Him, to rely upon Him above all. Of course, because Israel would not repent, God's anger did not turn away. God's hand was stretched out still. Stretched out still is both a threat of more to come and a promise that the final hammer had not dropped. Did that second chorus, verse 17, finally get their attention? Not everyone. So Isaiah kept on going. Third thing we see, the Lord wants compassion more than contention. Compassion more than contention. Verses 18 to 21. Here Isaiah starts with the image of fire, followed by the image of eating, devouring, a society destroyed, leading to a dog-eat-dog world. An esteemed Old Testament scholar says the nation is going to pot. Is that blunt enough for you? Clear enough? Verses 18 and 19 say, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke through the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. You notice at the end, the fire analogy gives way to the interpersonal side of things here. No one spares another. Or you might say no one has pity on anyone else. That same commentator from earlier, he explains, customary human compassion has dried up. It's everyone for himself. All is turned inward on number one. Derek Kidner's description is also good. He says, sin is doubly destructive. First, it reduces society to a jungle, then spreads its fires through it. But self-inflicted judgment, he says, is still God's judgment. Both of those comments are saying the fire of sin, the dog-eat-dog contentiousness, they are sin, and these sinners are responsible, but they are God's judgment for previous sins. Pride, verses 8 through 12, led to judgment upon the leaders, removal of the leaders, verses 9 to 17, and it all led to nasty divisions, nasty divisions. Verse 20 to 21, it talks about eating still being hungry. In other words, it's like venting their anger did not lead to resolution and peace. It just led to more. Manasseh, it says, devours Ephraim. Those are both tribes in Israel. Israel devouring Israel. And the only time that they come together, it says, is to fight against Judah. They're estranged brothers to the south. Now, what was the context of all this, 8th century B.C.? No one's 100% sure. Maybe it was lots of political assassinations in Israel, the northern kingdom. 2 Kings 15, 17 says there were six kings in their final 20 years. Four of those were assassinated. Maybe it referred to cannibalism during siege conditions. Deuteronomy 28 seems to allude to some of that. We don't know. Maybe it was something else. Either way, it was ugly. And it made God angry. Again at the end, it says, His anger did not turn away. Even after this judgment, His hand was stretched out still. Now to be clear, there are times when arguments, debates, 
must happen. That is not what's being described here. This is describing a knockdown, drag-out fight between God's children. Something that would have made UFC 254 or whatever number it was last night look tame. No, I didn't watch it. No, I'm not paying $70 for that. This is not disagreeing without being disagreeable, which is how I've heard Presbyterianism described at its best. You see, Jude... Jude, the book of Jude, it talks about contending, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But this doesn't seem like that. God commends what Jude writes. God condemns what Isaiah describes here. Because God, while God wants us to be ready to fight for the things that matter, he also wants us to love something greater than the fight itself. Some of us love fighting, debating arguing. And that love is not 100% pure. What does God love more than pure contention, contentiousness? He loves compassion. He loves the truth spoken in love. A few years ago, our session was debating how to guide a family with a theological difference. It was mostly private. And on the one hand, we believe that we must be clear about our beliefs, our position, clear, firm even. And yet someone else spoke up, someone with a few more hoary hairs, gray hairs than me, said something like this. I agree with what's been said, but I think we need to remember 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, which says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do not hear me say that truth and doctrine are unimportant. They most certainly are important. But the truth we're talking about is the truth that accords with, leads to godliness. Titus 1.1, 1, 1. in godliness or God-likeness is kind, patient. Godliness does not need to respond in kind to every insult or rude remark that comes our way. Godliness is God-like. And what is our God like? What is He like to rebellious sinners like us who did nothing to deserve His mercy Romans 2.4 says his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. If you know me, I think you know I'm not afraid to preach the fire, brimstone, the thunder of Scripture. Recently told another PCA pastor I was preaching Isaiah. Yes, all of it. He looked at me like I had five heads. And then he wished me well. <laughs> it is not always the thunder of Scripture that we need. Sometimes, Yes. All the time? No. We always need the truth. And sometimes we need the truth that the suffering servant will suffer the punishment that we deserve. That a bruised reed he will not break. That a faintly burning wick he will not quench. God does not hate all contention, let's be clear. But he does call his overseers, his elders, to be above reproach. And one of the things that means is that they are not quarrelsome, First Timothy 3 says. 
more than contention. He wants us to reflect his kindness. But Isaiah has one more point. Fourth thing we see is that the Lord wants philanthropists rather than parasites. The Lord wants philanthropists rather than parasites. You see this at the beginning of verse 10. Every other point was a more than statement. This is a rather than statement because I'm not sure God wants parasites at all. Oh, and there were parasites living in Israel in Isaiah's day. Leeches who robbed the poor, who sucked the life and livelihood out of others to enrich themselves. These parasites were the people in power who made the laws and decrees. And one author suggests that they might have rewritten land and property laws so that they could more easily foreclose on the property of the poor. That wasn't just shady, it also violated Old Testament laws. The civil applications of the moral law, to be technical. The type of laws that are not applicable to us now, 3,000 years later, thereabouts. Since we do not live under a theocratic government directly in covenant with God. Let me clarify, we as a church are still God's covenant people. But our civil government in whatever country we happen to reside is not the same as Israel's. Now, here's another description of these powerful parasites. Quote, those who have control of the legal machinery issue were issuing decrees that they can use to pad their own power and increase their own wealth. This is a hard topic to discuss. Anytime we hover around the topics of poverty and oppression, because we are tempted to import contemporary debates into this passage. See, this passage is not primarily about the proper way to conduct the reform welfare in 2021. This passage is about corruption by those in power, taking advantage of those who are weak in obvious ways. We should care about that. We should want fairness and justice for all, and I think we do. If you've ever traveled to a developing country and had someone casually bribe you at the airport for a basic service, like the permit for your oversized bag that you applied for months ago, then you probably got mad about it, didn't you? And you should. Not because it will ruin your life, but because it's wrong. And if that kind of thing casually happens at the airport, what kind of oppression happens in the real seats of power? You might also notice, this is interesting, among the victims of this injustice were the widows and the fatherless. Those who are often the object of God's mercy. Passages such as Psalm 68.5 say this. The same widows and fatherless, oh, this gets weird, to whom God says he will not show compassion in Isaiah 9.17, just a few verses before. What's going on here? One author says, So grievous was the state of the nation that the Lord had to desert even his customary defense of the defenseless, the widows and the fatherless. That's what's going on in 9.17. The nation is so far gone that God is withdrawing his normal activity. But the author goes on to say, but this does not give anyone else the right to do so. It doesn't give the people in power in chapter 10 the right to be wicked, the right to be wrong, do the wrong thing. Praying upon the weak is ungodly. Godliness is caring for the weak and defenseless. 
James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Praying upon the weak is ungodly. God hates it. But pouring yourself out for the weak is godly. Pouring yourself out, what you might call philanthropy. You see, you don't have to donate a million dollars and get your name on a building to be a philanthropist. The word simply means to love mankind your fellow man who is created in God's image, to pour yourself out for the good of another. And I realize that the application of that at any one time is always complicated. If you don't believe me, ask our deacons. But as we think about all that, as we think about God's call to be philanthropists, to be those who pour ourselves out for the good of our fellow man, shouldn't we ask ourselves this? Isn't that how God has loved us lavishly? Isn't he a prodigal father who pours himself out for us again and again and again? Isn't he a prodigal God? By the way, I'm pretty sure that phrase traces back either to Ed Clowney or Charles Spurgeon. I think Tim Keller even gives them credit for it. Isn't our God a good God? Even as those in power in Isaiah here. Even as they were growing more wicked and more witch, he warns them, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, that their wealth will not save them, not when the invasion finally comes. You'll try to hide among the dead bodies, he says, thinking that maybe they will miss you. And then that chorus comes one more time. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Why does he keep repeating that? Is it simply to tell preachers that a four-point sermon is best for this passage? Jeffrey Grogan suggests something more serious, more sobering. If even physical death does not satisfy the fierce anger of this holy God, what dread punishment lies beyond the grave? This is not necessarily the climax. This is just another warning, another plea. The kingdom that you are building without God will not last. Riches will fade, especially in the life to come. They will not provide lasting happiness, lasting comfort, and lasting security. But all of those things can be found in the arms of the ultimate philanthropist, the lover of our souls who spent himself for our sake. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Yes, I often use that verse in the bulletin for tithes and offerings time, but it's about so much more, isn't it? It's about the God who withholds no good thing from his people, Psalm 84:11. It's about the ultimate Father who longs to give good gifts to his children, Matthew 7. It's about him who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, for all who trust in him. Yes, God is angry. Because God's glorious Savior, the Prince of Peace, is coming. But his people have satisfied themselves with lesser gods, lesser lovers, which ultimately lead to destruction. He has something so much better for us. If we will only see it, if we will only rest in his 
gracious salvation. His anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Stretched out in threat of judgment, yes, but also stretched out to offer mercy. Again, Isaiah 30, verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits, longs to be gracious to you. Therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Let's pray. God, we pray that You would give our minds the comprehension, the ability to grasp the heights and depths of your glory, your goodness, your love for us, both your holiness, your justice, your hatred of evil, and your love for sinners such as us, the deep, deep love that we find in Jesus. Oh, Father, help us take it all in, for we need it. May we be well-rounded people, shaped by every nuance of your word. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Uh, before we stand and sing a song,